You're listening to the podcast, Yahweh and the Ancient Gods. A few days ago, I did a Sunday school class before church. The title was, Our God is an Awesome God, a close look at the gods of the ancient world. You're listening to the podcast, Yahweh and the Ancient Gods. Several days ago, I taught a Sunday school class. The title was a little bit longer. Our God is an awesome God, a close look at the gods of the ancient world and why Yahweh is the best. So I simplified it a bit, but I really like the material. And so I've expanded it a bit. I'm eager to share these thoughts with you. And I hope it'll be useful to you as you think about the narrow road. Yes, Christianity is, in a sense, one religion of many. But the God of the Bible is not the God of the other religions of the world, nor are the various religions identical, hardly even comparable. Some in the modern world are offended by some of the strong words of Scripture. For example, in the prophet Isaiah, there are mocking words. This is in chapter 44, and it seems that God is the speaker. So, This is not the mocking of uh, the prophet. This is God himself. All who make idols are nothing. The things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They're ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a God and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. It's a very overt criticism of ancient religions, which involved idols, as in fact probably the majority of modern religions do. They're idols in the temples of the gods. A few weeks ago, I was standing in the precincts of the Shwedagon Pagoda, This was a pagoda in Burma. It goes back more than 2,500 years to the time of the Buddha. So much tradition, millennia of tradition, and culture, and art, and sincere beliefs, and testimony, and experience. Could they really be wrong? And if you've ever been to a Buddhist temple, you'll know that statues of the Buddha are common. They're everywhere. Well, the Bible doesn't allow us to have the wrong God. That violates the first commandment, but nor does it allow us to even have an idol, because that violates the second commandment. I'd like to go back to Isaiah 44 and read a little bit more, because here uh, God criticizes at some length the process of the creation of the idol. Now, what's implied here is that God doesn't have a creator. No one made God. But here, the blacksmith takes a tool, works it with the coals, works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, you know, because the gods are basically viewed as, as superhumans. Human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or an oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine and made the rain, and the rain made it grow. It's used as fuel for burning. Here's my favorite part. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. 
but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. Their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, Half of it I use for fuel. I even bake bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? What an incredibly <laughs> lively description of the origin of the idol. It's cut from wood. The wood that he used to cook his dinner and warm him is, is the same wood that he carves an idol out of. And the section ends up, Remember these things, Jacob, for you are Israel, my servant. This was a constant reminder to Israel because Israel struggled with idolatry. And I want us to consider not just the the beautiful truths about Yahweh, who the God of the Bible is, but the inadequacy of the other ancient gods. I, mean, I guess there, there are two ways you could have ended up worshiping, worshiping Yahweh. If you got near him, you'd be drawn in by his love, his justice. He, he's so radically different to the other gods. But you could also have come to Yahweh, the true God, by fleeing the false gods. At any rate, Isaiah 44, I chose as our opening passage because it clearly holds the false gods and their idols in contempt. That rubs modern people the wrong way. You know, the prophet Elijah does the same thing on Mount Carmel. In 1 Kings 18, remember? The worshipers of Baal or Baal are dancing around trying to get Baal to answer them. And Elijah says, you need to shout louder. You know, he may be on a trip. He may be out of earshot. Or maybe he's sleeping. You need to wake him up. Or maybe he's stepped aside. You know, he's relieving himself. Because these gods eat, drink. Um, they need the toilet. Uh, they have emotions that they cannot always control. They are really very little different to uh, humans, except for their powers. And I notice these days in modern culture, there's a great interest in powers, what it would be like uh, to be able to run as fast as the flash, hundreds of miles an hour, what it would be like to be strong like an incredible Hulk, or be able to fly or be invisible. And if you want to know how this works, you don't, you don't need to read the comics or, or watch the films. Just get the newspaper. Read about the various dictators around the world. Read about dictators in some countries in Africa or Asia or South America, uh, in Europe, in the Middle East. Uh, I mean, they're all over. How they behave with power, sometimes unbridled, is the way the gods did behave. That is, the power corrupts them. As we will see, this mockery is not unjustified. It may be uncharitable in some ways, but I wouldn't even say that, because the differences among the gods are profound. We've probably all heard of the ancient Nordic gods. 
like Woden and Thor. In fact, we hear about them all the time, don't we? When we say Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, we're referring to the ancient Norse gods, to Tis and Woden and Thor and Frigg. And then after that, we're talking about Saturn and the sun and the moon. What kind of gods did they worship? And these are the gods of the Vikings and earlier and later. And even today, there are people who worship Thor. It's quite amazing to me. We used to live in Sweden, and we lived uh, close to Udenplan. That's, that was an area named after the god Woden. Uh, we weren't far from Valhallavegen. Valhalla is kind of like the Norse heaven, their idea of, of a great afterlife. We lived on Heimdallsgatan, Gatan or Street of Heimdall. That's another god. I mean, the gods are everywhere. They've survived. How did they behave? Well, the gods play tricks on people. They're tricksy, like Loki. They can be angry, like Thor. They commit adultery. They get even. They bicker. They fight. They take revenge, just like petty dictators who are humans. And in the Viking heaven, the idea was that you live in the afterlife to fight. Every day you engage in glorious battle. And then at night, you go to the banqueting hall, you feast, and you get drunk, and you celebrate these great deeds, and then you do it all again, all over the next day. And after another day of battle, back to Valhalla uh, to, to boast and take pride in, in, in these Viking virtues. Is that anything like the picture of the afterlife you see in the Bible? I mean, I think of the Indian gods. In the west of India, Ganesha is so popular. He's an elephant, an elephant on a man's uh, body. Uh, or I think of Hanuman, the monkey god. I think of Lakshmi, the eight-armed goddess, a goddess of prosperity, though really everyone who worships her is, is dirt poor. Kali, and you know, the Hindus would tell you they have a million gods, and I, I don't know how you could count that many. Uh, but I think it's very easy to demonstrate there are hundreds or thousands. In the east of India, Kali is very popular. She is uh, uh, emaciated. Uh, She has a staff with a skull on top of it, a garland of skulls hanging around her neck. Uh, She's horribly skinny, gaping mouth, a kind of bluish-purple skin, long tongue, tongue kind of rolling out. Her eyes are red, and she roars. She wears a tiger skin. She's she's evil. She's fighting one of the great demons. And every time um, she hits him, the demon's blood falls to the ground and reproduces a clone of itself. And eventually Kali gets there and she fights and she eats the demon and all of the clones. She sucks the blood from the body. She puts all the clones in her mouth and then she dances on the battlefield. She steps on all the cadavers. I mean, this is a popular god has been for centuries, for millennia. Think of the gods of the Chinese, the Africans, the Americans, the Eskimos. Um, I have a book in my library. It's by a theologian named Michael Jordan, Encyclopedia of Gods. And this encyclopedia has 2,500 different gods. That is amazing. I think of the New World gods, like the Aztecs. You know, Aztec sacrifice uh, was all about blood, and particularly human blood. And the higher um, in status you were 
If you were the uh, in the upper class in the Aztecs, then the most was expected of you. Well, that was pretty much the same as the ancient Romans or the ancient Greeks. But what they loved the most were hearts. And not just hearts taken from dead people, hearts taken from living people. Those who were stout-hearted, bold, brave, courageous, warriors captured from the enemy, were taken to the temple, and while they were still living, their hearts were ripped out. And you've, you've seen this uh, depicted in some films. It's not an exaggeration. I've been to such temples. They don't do it anymore. But ancient religion is full of human sacrifice, uh, cannibalism, immorality, all kinds of things that we would rightly reject. I think of the Greco-Roman gods. Now, these are the ones we're most familiar with, I think, in Western culture. I remember uh, in year five, we studied Greek religion, Roman religion. I guess I was 10 years old. And we looked at the 12 major gods of the Romans and what, how they had been adapted from the Greeks. And these gods... Again, they commit adultery, they commit murder, sometimes they lust after humans. They're immortal, you know, they live on Mount Olympus, but they're immoral. And what's worse, you have some of the great figures in Greek culture, ancient culture. Think of Homer's Iliad. They blame the gods for their own behavior. One uh, commits rape, and he says, well, the love goddess, you know, Aphrodite forced me to do it. I didn't really have a choice. Another one blames another god. Another one blames another god. You know, how can you resist the god's will? Well, how convenient. Can you see how looking at some of these other gods throws the understanding of the true god into high relief? Now, we're probably most interested in Israel and environs. We're thinking of the Old Testament, the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament people of God were commissioned to eradicate the false religions of Canaan, Deuteronomy 7. And yet Israel was often attracted to these very religions and repeatedly incorporated them into her worship. So as a result, she lost her distinctiveness, her holiness. This temptation is syncretism, picking and choosing, syncretism combining elements of various religions. That's what people do today. They remember something from a church they attended. They add a little bit of Confucius and then something they heard, some lyrics on the radio and a rock song, and you put it all together to make your homespun religion, except that the parts don't normally fit together, especially when you begin to analyze them logically. Well, ancient Israel was syncretic, modern man is syncretic. And that means we have a lot to learn by studying the various idolatries of the ancient Near East. We don't have to go to the Aztecs or the Chinese or the various African gods. Just look in the Bible. Dozens of divinities are mentioned in the, in the Bible. Um, I was looking in the New Testament last week and I was just wondering, well, how many uh, uh, different gods are named? Well, in the New Testament, I just went to the book of Acts. We have Zeus and Hermes, Zeus, the king of the gods, Hermes, the messenger, mentioned in Acts 14 and 17, Artemis, Acts 19, remember the big riot, Ares or Mars, that's Acts 17, the Gemini twins, Castor and Pollux, Acts 28, and there are more. So there are a number of gods' names, but nothing compared to the Old Testament. You've got, of course, the gods of Egypt, each one of whom was disgraced by the plagues, like the first plague, the plague of blood showed that the god of the Nile, the river, 
uh, Hapi, the god of the Nile, was powerless. Osiris was the god whose bloodstream was thought to be a great river and source of life for all the land. So Hapi and Osiris aren't doing well. And then you've got the second plague, the plague of frogs, which insults Hecate. Hecate is the wife of the creator of the world, and Hecate is also the goddess of childbirth. She's represented as a frog. I mean, you can go through each one of those plagues, and uh, normally two or three different Egyptian gods are shown to be powerless, are revealed as ridiculous. Uh, but the gods of Egypt are in the Bible, gods like Ammon. In fact, one of the kings of Israel names his son Ammon. Uh, there are the gods of Assyria and Babylon. We read about Rimon and Nebo, uh, Shamash, the sun god, Bel, Marduk, uh, Asher, and Leo. So many of these. One of the most humorous stories is Dagon, the Philistine corn god. Dagon's statue is, is uh, in its temple. The captured ark is placed there. Now, the ark is interesting because the ark has no statue. Even when they had a tabernacle and a temple, there was no statue of God, no image at all. But at any rate, the ark is put before Dagon, and I think you may remember the story in 1 Samuel 5, Dagon falls over. They set Dagon up again. The next night, same thing happens. Dagon falls over. This time, his head's broken off and his hands, which means his head, his thought, his rationality, his hands, his power, his ability to actually do anything is shown to be nothing. Dagon, uh, Chemosh, Ashtoreth. I mean, friends, there's so many gods mentioned in the Bible. Molech, the one to whom you made a human sacrifice of your firstborn child, a burnt offering, a holocaust. In the Old Testament, it's called passing your child through the fire. Baal, oh, certainly Baal was the most popular of all. And I think we, we've heard of him. He was notorious. He was everywhere. It's the Phoenician Canaanite god. Really, Baal, Baal just means lord or husband. But we, we find Baal in Judges, First and Second Kings, uh, Jeremiah, Hosea, Zephaniah. It's in Numbers. And it's a fertility god. As an annual summer drought dried out the vegetation, Baal was thought to have died because the god of death, whose name is Mot, he had triumphed. And then when the winter rains brought verdure back to the land, Baal was declared to have been reborn. And this cycle repeat, repeats every year. Worshippers engaged in sexual acts to arouse Baal, and then he would bring the rain to make Mother Earth fertile. And many struggles were fought to eradicate Baal worship from the nation of Israel, but with little lasting success. I'm not that surprised. His loose morals were attractive. Numbers 25, the story of the zeal of Phineas is especially noteworthy. Here, sexual promiscuity goes hand in hand with the Baal cult. Worshipping Baal involved sex, prostitution, and even in the tabernacle or temple of the Lord in the Old Testament, you will find sometimes prostitution, both male and female. These are the gods to whom the Israelites were attracted. How do we know? Maybe the prophets exaggerated. Maybe they just didn't like those gods. Maybe they weren't tolerant. Well, that's certainly not the case. Firstly, these gods cannot be compared to the true God, Yahweh. And secondly, we know that they worship these gods because of the archaeological evidence. In every site that's been excavated in the Holy Land, Idols have been 
found. More idols found in Jerusalem than anywhere else in the Holy Land. The idols are normally feminine fertility goddesses, though they could be others. But it's quite clear that the ancient Jews were serving not just Yahweh, but also the gods of the Egyptians and the Canaanites and and others. So what is it with Canaanite religion? Uh, Their gods don't sound so good. What, What was really going on? Well, first, I'd have to mention that these gods are impersonal. Daniel 2.11. They're high above uh, humans. They don't care about humans unless it's to their advantage. And they certainly don't love. They have no desire to enter into intimate relationship with us. Actually, they depend on us humans to make the proper sacrifices. So it's not love. Now, I'm I'm not trying to imply that in no religion in the world are there any people who want to love God. But it's not the norm. I mean, Christianity, if you define it broadly enough, is the biggest religion in the world. But we know by observation and experience, not an awful lot of people really love God. The next biggest religion would be Islam. In Islam, Allah has 99 names. Maybe you've heard of those. Uh, Names like uh, warrior, uh, deceiver, but not father. He's not father, and he's not love. Some Muslims think of God as love. There's a mystical movement called the Sufis who who go into ecstasies because they want to feel close to God. They think mainstream Islam is dry, um, distant, and they want something real. They want to feel something personal. And they go into ecstasies and they dance and speak in tongues, and that's the Sufis. But that's not most Muslims. And I think it's that way with most religions. I've had the chance to visit most of the countries of the world and to enter temples, shrines, mosques, synagogues, um, holy places uh, of, I think, all the major religions of the world. And what seems to be going on, you have only a few in any location who are true seekers. Most just go along for what they can get out of religion, if they get anything out of it. Ancient Israel was the same, and the modern church could be accused of the same. Mutual manipulation. See, the essence of these these religions, pagan religions, any religion that's not worshiping the true biblical God, Yahweh, paganism, the essence is getting what you want from the God by performing the right ritual. It all boils down to mechanics, not personal relationship. So in a sense, you're manipulating the deity. And then somehow that deity uh, benefits and then benefits you. It's a transaction. So it's not surprising that paganism involves special formulas and spells and rituals, rites. How you live is irrelevant. I mean, how you live as far as morality goes, uh, what kind of a person you are, are you righteous, Uh, ethics, how you treat your fellow man, that's really irrelevant. You just go through the emotions. Once you've fulfilled your religious duty, you're free to live as you want. Now, before we look down our noses at paganism, let's be honest, this reminds us of the common version of Christianity. You you sin throughout the week, you confess, and then you receive some kind of blessing at the weekend, right? So I don't really see a big difference between the two. But God calls true Christians to something different. Nothing is to come before God. He's our most vital relationship, not just a priority, but a relationship, 
And I'm still struggling to figure out what that means after all these decades. We worship him, we orientate our lives about him. Anything else is idolatry. So the gods are not just engaging in manipulation and they're distant, they're also immoral. They're not worthy of emulation. They're like the gods of the ancient Greek, Roman, Norse pantheons, the pantheons of the Mayas or the Aztecs or the various peoples in Africa. They're governed by self-interest. They're capricious. They're vindictive. They live for the same pleasures that humans live for. Judges 9, verse 13. I mean, the gods themselves get drunk. They act just like humans with all the markings of ego and intrigue, lust, rage, self-interest, revenge. So the notion of a deity being motivated by love to make a self-sacrifice, as in Christianity, it's alien. It's alien to modern religions. It's totally alien to the ancient religions. And it's not surprising because these religions promote self-interest before love for others. So they're not only immoral, but they expect ritual, not righteousness. The, the law, the prophets insist that right living is essential for worship to be accepted by God. Think of those beautiful texts like Amos 5 and Micah 6. That's what God expects. The pagan gods were typically nature powers personified. Gods of thunder, flood, storm, uh, celestial bodies, all viewed as divine. Yet in biblical religion, celestial and terrestrial bodies and events are just part of creation. They're inferior to their ultimate creator. In fact, they're not alive. So in Genesis 1.16, the sun and the moon are slightingly referred to as the greater light and the lesser light. But in ancient religions, these were named. Sun and the moon had names, and they were worshipped because they were gods. In the Bible, the, the writers take pains to emphasize that we don't worship them. They're just a big light and a little light, like a big noise and a little noise. When Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh, has the showdown on Mount Carmel against the prophets of the fertility god Baal to determine who really controls the rain, then Baal is exposed as a, an imposter, a powerless one. The ancient religions did not have monotheism. They were polytheistic, multiple gods, and they had jurisdiction. Typically, they served the nation. The gods had jurisdiction in their nation. It's like then you cross the national border or you cross the state line and, well, now it's another god. In fact, even cities had gods. Jeremiah 2 talks about city gods, but they're national gods, like 2 Kings 17. So this allows room for lots of divinities. And in a sense, the ancient pagans considered all deities to be real in some sense. 2 Chronicles 32, 19. So they give allegiance to their favorite deity, maybe the, the god of their city or, or their country, but they don't deny the existence of the others, and they may even worship them sometimes. Sometimes the gods morphed when they were going from one culture to another. So in, in Ekron, you find Baal, Baal-zebub, Lord of the Flies. So there are many different Baals, just as there were many different Buddhas, there are many different versions of the sun god, and so forth. And there were household gods just everywhere. The ancient Romans had them. I remember acting in a play in high school, and I was one of those. Uh, but household gods, like the ones we read about in Genesis 31, the ones that uh, Jacob takes, or actually Rachel takes. Now, Judaism and Christianity are strictly monotheistic. They affirm the existence of only one 
God. So what does this mean? What are we to take away from this? What are we to learn? Well, let's just sum up. Characteristics of paganism, immoral, if not amoral, impersonal, localized, uh, fertility gods, you know, based on the four seasons and weather, emphasis on the occult, syncretism, worship on the high places, and they were highly attractive to the people of Israel, extremely attractive. So experts in religion emphasize that the differences among the various religions of the world are much greater than the similarities. Of course, there's some similarities, but the differences are far, far greater. Let me return to a question I asked at the beginning of this podcast. Was the mocking, the sarcasm employed by Elijah or by the Lord himself, Isaiah 44, justified? Or was it just ungracious? Well, it's not that we should rely on sarcasm, but the sarcasm was justified. These gods were not worthy of being worshipped. They were not holy. The true God is not only a God of love. It's a God who is holy, who's set apart, who's holy, with a W, wholly different, wholly other than us. We want to partake in his nature. He's not just an exalted version of one of us, uh, as is taught by Mormonism, say. You know, they say, as uh, we are now, so once was God. And as God is now, so we may be. The goal of a male Mormon is to become God of his own planet or, or galaxy. We don't believe that. The gods are other. The God is other. There's only one God. He's other. He's not one of us. He wasn't created. He is. In fact, Yahweh isn't even named. I've asked you, what's the name of God? You might say Jehovah. Well, that's not actually a biblical word. It's more of a, a misunderstanding. Yahweh just means I am. Moses asks the Lord, if Pharaoh requests your name, what do I say? I mean, who is sending me? And Yahweh says, I am. In other words, he says, Yahweh, I am. He just is. You can't name him. You can't put a handle on him, control him, uh, put him into a creed or a formula or a, a magic word. It's not about ritual. You actually have to know him and you have to be righteous. Those other gods are not worthy of being worshipped. Now, what is the application for us today? Perhaps you're a student, and you've been exposed to certain modern liberal views in some of your classes. It might be a religion class. It could be sociology, anthropology. Sometimes um, it even comes up in classes on philosophy or psychology. Don't be embarrassed. Stand your ground. Don't be sheepish. Don't act as though, well, yeah, it is kind of uh, ungracious to think that our God is the best God. Hey, biblically, we don't think that our God is the best God. We think he's the only God. We deny that the other gods even have existence. But if you want to pretend they exist and you want to compare their character to the character of the God of the Bible, you will be stunned how 
corrupt they are and like us, and how unlike us, how holy and pure the true God is. So if you're a student, use that. Uh, Secondly, uh, because that'll uh, bolster your own faith. Secondly, and your outreach and evangelism, this is useful information for evidences because it enables us to defend the truth and to help people to see the differences between the central figure of Scripture, God, and whatever people may have been uh, reacting to, or you know, if they're on the run from God, or the God that they believe is the true God, when they see who God really is. And, and I'm suggesting this can be shown by looking at his virtues or looking at the failures of his uh, rivals, his competitors, so to speak. Um, when we do that, it helps us to understand that he is unique. And I remind you, unique doesn't mean special. Unique means one of a kind. There's only one of him. And maybe most important, because this is something you'll use whether or not you're a student, whether or not you're sharing your faith with someone, this is important every day. God expects us to relate to him in love. Ritual is not enough. God expects righteousness. We can't just go through the motions of church attendance and offering some money to the needy, make a donation to the church, uh, take communion every week. These are all good things. But it's not mechanical. You don't just do that and then God blesses you. And yet almost all uh, versions of Christianity today emphasize God's purpose to bless you. But it's actually about righteousness. No degree of going through the motions, no degree of emotion is sufficient. We need to be righteous, and we must strive to be holy, for God is holy. And that sets Yahweh apart from all ancient gods, all modern rivals. We need to have some conviction about that.